Saying you're a Christian in society comes with a lot of social baggage. There's a reason why you don't usually admit it when the first time you meet somebody. And it's probably because people who call themselves Christians have used it as a tool to justify some of the greatest injustices in human history on their pursuit for power and prosperity. Think about the Crusades and the Middle Evil times. Think about how the church sold indulgences and robbed the pockets of poor people, telling them that you could buy your way to heaven, keeping them oppressed, keeping them in poverty. Think about slavery in America and how people warped the Bible to support the brutality of slavery in America. Think about everything after slavery. The KKK did the same thing. It was full of people who would wear choir robes on Sunday morning and clam robes on Sunday night. They would just flip them inside out. Pastors rebuked the civil rights movement from the pulpit. And even in our lifetime, think about all the sex abuse scandals that have happened in the church. All the ones that have come out in your lifetime that you're aware of. Think about Westboro Baptist Church and street preachers that come to campus and preach, preach nothing but hate to you, condemning you to hell. Make no mistakes, racists that marched on Charlottesville that Friday night were in pews Sunday morning. Think about this week in your own lives, how you modeled Christ. I, don't, I didn't go to the UGA here. I went to App. I'm still getting to know this place. Uh, and I think back to my week's when I would show up at large group and then the following week and get drunk. I I know what my life was like. It it was not the best model of who we know Christ to be. Tonight, you might already be asking this question. If these are God's, God's people, what does this say about God? If this is the reputation of his people, what does it do to his reputation? This is a bad reputation... It is this bad reputation that for some of you tonight, it is the barrier for you coming to trust him. It is the barrier for you to call yourself a Christian. And so tonight we bring these tensions and questions to Hosea to listen for God's answer. And if you've been with us since spring break, in the first three chapters, you saw God tell Hosea that he needs to experience something before he can say anything to his people. God says to Hosea that your your wife will resemble Israel. And before you do anything, you need to have a taste of what my end of the covenant is like. Do you feel that hurt, Hosea? Do you feel that abandonment, that anger, that heartbreak? Now keep that. I'm going to need you to keep that same energy and go tell this to my people. And then... We're going to dive into chapter 10, but you need the whole context of 4 through 10 in order to understand what God's going to tell you tonight. Why you're sitting here over 2,000 years after this was preached to Israel and why it's important to you. So here we go. In chapter 4, God throws his people in the courtroom and he cross-examines them. The very first word that comes out of Hosea's mouth is, Hear the word of the Lord, O Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Or to paraphrase it, Hey Israel, you remember that covenant you made with God? The you will be my people, I will be your God thing? Yeah, because you chewed it up, spit it out, trampled over it, and forgot that it exists. You are guilty of breaking every law that God has commanded you. Ben has already pointed out that historically, 
we know that for the first time in Israel's history, they are a prosperous nation that has little memory left of what it's like to be persecuted. Their dependence on God at one point and their thankfulness for him at one point was tied to their oppression. For most of their history, God seemed necessary for their security. They had nothing else to rest in. But now they had land. They had wealth. They had security. And these things became God to them, and all of their resources and every waking hour of their day was spent maintaining that idol because it became all about them. The rest of 4 through 5, God makes Israel painfully aware of exactly who they are. If it's going to be about them, you better know who you are, right? They were sandwiched between Israel, I mean, excuse me, Assyria and the Egyptians, two of the most infamous empires in human history, right? And you become just like the people you hang out with. We see that they made deals with Assyria and Egypt and secured their, to, in order to secure their prosperity and began to worship their idols as well. Their day-to-day lives looked no different than those who denied God. They lied, they stole, they murdered, they drank, they shared in the very same sexual immorality in, in all the same ways in order to feed, quiet, and numb the insecure idol of their prosperity. In 6, we see that Israel has a classic oh crap moment as, uh, at, at, in the middle of God's prosecution, and they realize they forgot to cover one base. They neglected their sacrifices and their service towards God, so they try to play catch-up. But God sees what's in their heart. What can I do with you, O Ephraim? What can I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like the morning cloud, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Does any of this sound familiar? Is this how a weekend in Athens plays out for you? Justifying whatever sinful action you make as it feeds, quiets, and nuns whatever insecure idol your heart's clinging to. You're drinking your sex habits, your questionable academic integrity, your, the jokes and the words that you say behind closed doors that would have culture calling for your head. And then showing up to church on Sunday to cover the Christian base too to protect your prosperity and your security and your pursuit for your career. That was me in college. I'm not hating on UGA's culture. That was my life. I can say these things because I lived it. It got worse. The corruption was systemic. Of course a corrupt people are going to build a corrupt nation. Their kings were corrupt, their priests were corrupt, and everyone in between. The rich got richer, the poor got poor. The social distance between the oppressed and the oppressors grew without restraint. They bound their justice system to their earthly understanding in order to feed their prosperity, and it secured the nation's destruction. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like I just took a paragraph out of a textbook from your history classes? And that brings us to chapter 9. 
And all I'm going to do is read the last two verses. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. That's God's prosecution of Israel. That is every single charge he has, every piece of evidence, and the sentence. And hopefully now that we're at 10, it starts to make a little bit more sense what Ben read. And if I lost you somewhere along the way, come back in. Because right here in 10, God gives us his closing argument. He summarizes everything. Can we get it back on the board? In 1 through 2, God charges their idolatry. They see that he knows that they have put body, mind, and soul towards persevering their prosperity. They tried to cover all of their bases, turned to every idol, adopted every sinful practice, and their heart towards him is now false. In 3 through 5, God goes even deeper. He digs in. They rest on their own understandings. And they manipulated government and justice systems, stopping at nothing to, persevere, to preserve the insecurity of their prosperity. They murdered three kings in two years just because they, it threatened their idols. Then six to the end, God lowers the gavel and sentences Israel. Israel will be put to shame. All of their sin will be destroyed. They are at the mercy of of God. Go on to the next uh, half of it, and we see in verse 12 that he makes an invitation to Israel in the middle of the sentencing. Save yourselves and seek the Lord so that he can save you. But if you're like me, the prosecution of the last six chapters paints this invitation as God throwing a 10-foot ladder to people in a 100-foot hole, the hole that we're in. They don't even know how to do what he is asking. They can't fathom it. They don't even know who he is anymore. And so he continues through the end. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, Beth, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. And this is where God has us, his people. Backed into a corner. In a grave we can't hope to crawl out of. God has us, his people, exposed for what we are. Evil and destructive at our core. His case against us is documented for the entire world to read so that everybody may know who we are. So if this is what God's people have been like, what does that say about God? That's the question we're getting at, right? Put yourself on the receiving end of all those injustices I opened up talking about, and then you'll taste the injustice. 
And then you'll experience the dilemma I'm talking about when we're, talk, when we're going into what your behavior says about God. Imagine being one of the uneducated people the church was manipulating to keep them in poverty, unable to read the scriptures for yourself. Imagine being a black child during Jim Crow when you saw a pastor walk out of First Presbyterian Church, flip his robe, put on a robe, and raise hell. Imagine being a victim of sexual assault and witnessing priests do all they can to quiet you and your claims to protect the prosperity of their church. How can there be a just God when all of that has happened? Open a history book, turn on the news for once. Do you not see the evil? The burden of justice and retribution is on the marginalized and the oppressed to pull themselves out. That's what some of you are saying. That's why some of you cannot trust him because you see our evil. This is not who God is. Here's what God's justice looks like. God denied Israel's prosperity gospel and delivered them to the Egyptians and the Assyrians. In 722 BC, Israel was invaded. 13 through 15 happened. Some of them were enslaved, the rest were deported. And those were the only ones that survived. God eventually brought them back to their land 70 years later, and here we are now. Christians in 2019. And for some of you, all those injustices that I, that I listed off, they aren't history, it's your biography. You're survivors of assault and abuse. I've heard your stories. You've been dragged through divorces. You've cried and had your heart broken over pain that has consumed your friends. You're angry at the burden a self-righteous people are to society. Whether you're a Christian or not, the evil we have done is a barrier to you believing God is as real, good, and powerful as we say. Maybe you're like me. And you're painfully aware of how evil you are. As I described God's persecution of Israel, you were consumed by shame. And at some point while I was talking, you couldn't pay attention anymore because you were just trapped in that cage. You felt like God exposed who you are. I know this is some of you. I have watched you cry tears in our Saturday discussions. I know that some of you are consumed with your sin. Not being as experienced as Ben, it took me two days to get to this point in my sermon planning. <laughs> Which means I spent two entire days, over 20 hours, examining the, God, the case God had against us. The case he had against me. For someone that regularly falls into a habit of shaming himself... That was one of the heaviest experiences of my entire life. 
I sat back in that office right there. And the question that keep that kept on getting stirred up in my heart was how could it be just for God to forgive me? Does he not care about how I'm so consumed with my day-to-day life that my mother struggles to convince herself that I don't hate the home that she made for me and that I actually love to come visit? That I love for her to be in my life and know what is going on with me? I'm responsible for people's alcohol abuse because of the example that I set for them while I was in college. For years, I contorted people created in his image to satisfy my sexual desire. At the start of the sermon, I lost some of you right off the bat. You're probably like, oh, here he goes again with that social justice stuff. Were those Saturday discussions not enough for you to get that out? If you just wouldn't talk about it, it wouldn't be a problem. You want to know why I talk about it so much? You want to know why I care? Because I am complicit in everything we talked about. If you could replay my life, you would see that I am the reason it's a problem, whether I talk about it or not. My entire life, I have been one viral video away from being a social outcast. One drunken mistake. Not even really a mistake. I didn't care. God, do you not see how my heart wants to hate you and hurt people? I have done things and said things to people that I cannot bring myself to utter to you guys tonight. So I'll ask this question again. What does the truth about who God's people are, the people that he has married himself to, what does that say about who he is? What does it say about God that I, standing before you right now, have been given the promise of eternal life. I've uh, hopefully trapped myself in a corner up here on stage. Um, Hopefully y'all have gotten a little introspective. So I'm going to have to give you the answer up front. What it says is that he is glorious. He is powerful, he is compassionate and mighty, he is just and the justifier of the unjust, as Paul says in Romans. The truth about God's people shows that God cares about all injustice more than any of you could ever imagine. He has gotten angrier than anyone in history. He has cried more tears over your abuse than you could ever produce in your entire life. His compassion for his creation and his people is the very thing that motivates and fuels his justice. So let's go back to the text. Can you pull up the first page, verse 1? We see right here, God describes his people as a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. God likes to do this a lot in the scriptures, right? Often he compares his church to a vine. Jews hearing this message coming from Hosea would have been very familiar with it. 
it would have pulled their minds to all the other places in Scripture where it says that God called Israel to be a vine whose fruit was to be a blessing to the nations. The Jews would have known the exact contradiction that God was communicating to them about themselves, about you. They understood it clearly. Just like the Jewish audience in chapter 15 of the Gospel of John would have understood the illustration Jesus made. Go ahead and leave Hosea 10 up. In verse 1, Jesus makes a very bold claim. He proclaims, I am the true vine. This vine that God's talking about here. He proclaims, I am the true vine, and my father is the the vine dresser. Jesus is announcing that he is the blessing we were supposed to be in the world. He is the true Israel, true vine, true king, true son of God. And oh, what a blessing he was, right? God's compassion for his creation and his people, his desire for justice to reign here on earth, moved him to come down to earth himself. You are going to not find that anywhere in any other religion. Jesus, God made flesh, came down and he got his hands dirty, right? He came down to get the job done that we couldn't do. Instead of coveting and abusing his divinity and power being God, Jesus' entire ministry was caring for the marginalized, caring for the hungry, the oppressed, the poor, the exiled, the defiled, and those hurt by themselves, society, and you. He regularly rebuked the priests and his fellow Jews with power that ignored and abused their call to be a blessing to these very people. And just like Israel here in Hosea... They had no idea what to do with him. He threatened their idol of prosperity. And so they prosecuted him, and he put, they put him on the cross. And he didn't stop there, right? Because if that was all he did, go ahead to the, the second half of this. If that was all he did, then the grace that we see, and the invitation we see in 12 would still be impossible, and our future would still be 13 through 15. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived, and then he sacrificed himself. He took the wrath our injustice deserved and died the death we should have died. And then he resurrected himself so that his people may be united to him forever in eternity. If you've never heard of the artist Liz Weiss, you should. Because what a faithful sister she is. She so elegantly and beautifully articulates this scene of the gospel in her song, Entrance. That when I was planning this sermon, I cried three times (laughs) since yesterday. (laughs) I can't do her voice justice, so I'm just going to be able to read it to you. Please go back and listen to it for yourself. There you were hanging, transforming the pain into entrance into your heart. Before we could come in, you had to destroy within the darkness that kept us apart. Before we heard of you, but we had no concern of you. Darkness was all around. 
The wall was so high, we had no way to get by. But then you tore it all down. We crossed the threshold and death lost its control. As the sun rose in our hearts, we felt the warm embrace of your sovereign grace. Now every day, every day, we can start to live in love with you. Follow and worship you with songs that flow from our souls. Filled with the light of you as we are led by you, longing with joy to be home. Jesus, come, take our hand, lead us into the promised land. The person of Jesus is not only justified to reconcile God's people for himself for eternity, but it is the very force by which justice rolls over the earth like a river. In light of this, I have a different story about humanity to tell you. So let's go back and put John 15. Jesus here says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And so again, to connect this passage to Hosea, we're going to look to wisdom from one of our sisters, Akimini Uan, as she writes, Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are required to tell the truth about ourselves to God. This is the truth about ourselves that we see in Hosea, that we are sinners who have sinned against God in thoughts, words, and deeds. The only way we are able to confess that is by grace. And we, when we confess that sin, we become children of God, no longer enemies. We have peace with God. But that peace only comes after we confess the truth that we are sinners in need of grace and that the blood of Jesus covers us and unites us one to another because we're reconciled back to God. So now we can be reconciled back to one another. However, truth always precedes reconciliation. My personhood is not the bridge. My blackness is not the bridge. My gender is not the bridge. The blood of Jesus is the bridge, which is made possible by my grace, by, excuse me, by, which is made possible by grace through faith in his finished words. The burden is no longer on the marginalized and the oppressed to have justice. It's been served, and we get to play it out. So go back to how I started the sermon. Each example I gave you of injustice done by the hands of people that call themselves Christians was rebuked and exposed by Christians. For every injustice that Christians have done in society and through history, it has been Christians that have redeemed them. 
Christians that abided in Christ and bore his fruit, Christians that demanded more of their brothers and sisters, been the backbone of each justice movement and reformed the church. Note, it was through Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, Micah, that God delivered this message to Israel in 700 BC. It was Christians that rebuked the Crusades and people like Martin Luther who rebuked the church's practices and called them to repentance. During the slave trade, it was brothers and sisters like Isabella Bomfrey, Frederick Douglass, Phyllis Wheatley, John Newton that led the abolition movement. During Jim Crow and the Civil Rights era, it was brothers and sisters like Martin and Loretta Scott King, Nick Childs, and Rosa Parks that, rebu- that rebuked Jim Crow, segregation, and their fellow Christians that defended it and then led the movement of justice. When over 700 victims of sexual assault came forward recently in this Southern Baptist Church, it has been Debbie Vasquez, Thomas Doyle, and countless others in that very church that held them and then elevated their voices so that the SBC had to respond, could no longer quiet them. It's people like Jamar Tisby, Trillian Newbell, Jackie Hill Perry, Akimini Uwan, and pastors here in Athens that are working tirelessly, tirelessly to confront and tear down tons of other idols and injustices that are affecting you, that are causing you to hurt. As for me, it was my mom and dad. It was men like Chris Horn and Garrett McMillan. It was women like Colin Jewell, Jackie Kayas, Madeline Hogue. It was churches like New City Fellowship and Grace DC. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for how they faithfully have abided in Christ. And they told the truth about myself to me and then the truth about God. And it reminded me to sow righteousness, to reap steadfast love, humble myself, and call out to God. So to bring things full circle, what does the reality of what God's people are like say about God? That he is making people who are a part of the problem into people a part of his solution. How do you move from being a part of the problem with the world to a part of his solution? Only by being united to Christ. Only. Because he is the true vine, the true son of God, the truly just one. God is willing tonight to, to, to unite you to Christ. If you are a Christian that is convicted by how you have lived for him, tonight we have a gift to repent and to delight in his promises, to delight in his work, and delight in who he is. I would love to talk with you after this. 
I would love to talk with you. Have a beef with what I say if you disagree. Because I hold by this. I believe this to be true. I believe this to be the solution the world needs. Father, thank you so, so much for your justice, for your commitment to your people that you sent your son down to us to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserved, and then you did the heavy lifting to resurrect yourself and unite us to you. Thank you for that being the way by which justice can return to this earth. Father, we long for the day when we can taste your glory and see it in person. I pray it's in Jesus' name. Amen.